Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today's show, we'll be talking with Dr. Ira Chasnoff on prenatal alcohol and drug exposure. We are a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, you can subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education Organization, providing support and unbiased information before, during, and after adoption or fertility treatment to create strong families. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring has a Heart Plus Pharmacy Saving Card, which helps patients, both cash-paying and insured, save money on their fertility medications. To get more information on the Heart Plus Pharmacy Savings Card, you can talk with your doctor, or you can visit the Faring website at faringfertility.com slash heart. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information. Some of our gold sponsors that I want to tell you about are Bethany Christian Services. They are a global nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering children and families. They're committed to quality social services along the whole child welfare continuum. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been providing adoption services for more than 50 years with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and Kentucky. Nightlight provides international, domestic, foster, and embryo donation services throughout the U.S., we, last but certainly not least, we have Independent Adoption Center, whose mission is to provide open adoption placements and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, Texas, and more. We also have other great sponsors who gener- whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. So we ask when choosing an adoption or infertility service provider, please consider using one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, years in operation, just a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. By using these databases, you support those who support us, and we thank you. On today's show, we will be talking about prenatal alcohol and drug exposures with Dr. Ira Chasnoff. Dr. Chasnoff is one of the nation's leading researchers on the effects of prenatal alcohol and drug exposure, and he is the author of a book on the subject, The Mystery of Risk. Dr. Chasnoff is also with the with NTI Upstream, and he is a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. Welcome back, I should say, Dr. Chesnoff, to Creating a Family. Thanks, Don. You know, uh, 
when you were here last time, and, and, and if you're listening uh, to this show now and you have not heard the September 2013, so last September, interview we did uh, with Dr. Chasnoff, uh, I strongly recommend that you go back. You can find it on the 2013 Big List at our uh, on the radio page of our site. Uh, I strongly recommend it. And I did something that I have never done on air. I invited you back on air, which is probably not polite. <laughs> I, well, well, I didn't have that. option, did I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you, you, well, it did take us a while to get it scheduled, but yes, we did. And I, it, the show has, was a very popular show, and, uh, and the feedback has just been overwhelmingly great. And, uh, and considering the questions we've gotten for this show, uh, many of them a little too long, I will add, so I'm going to be paraphrasing a lot. Um, uh, it, uh, it's a topic that uh, touches a lot of people. And one of the things that became clear when I was reading through the questions we've received is we, we have a bit of a division uh, in the audience uh, between people who are deciding whether to adopt a child or an infant um, that has, uh, has or may have uh, been exposed to alcohol or drugs prenatally and those who have already adopted and are in the process of raising a child. So I'm going to use that as kind of our very basic organizational structure for this. Uh, I'm going to start with the deciding, and then, but I want to uh, allow a fair amount of time to talk about the, um, the impacts and how it affects parenting. But um, from the deciding standpoint, it, we received a number of questions uh, that were very similar. Oftentimes, although not always, I think sometimes people make the assumption that it's an always, and that's not the case. But oftentimes, when people are uh, adopting, uh, and in particular the questions we received were relevant to domestic infant adoption, but the same thing could be said for much many international adoptions and adoptions from foster care. They see... They have some evidence in the um, history, the uh, or the suspicion anyway, that the uh, expectant woman has consumed alcohol or done some drugs uh, during her pregnancy. Uh, and the question is, it, it almost comes down to a how much is too much. We all know that the best scenario is none. But when you're adopting, as one person said, the best scenario the best scenario is not that usually. So, can we address the issue for people who are reading over uh, information about uh, expectant women's um, drug or alcohol use, or are adopting from a country where they perceive that uh, prenatal alcohol use is high? or adopting from foster care where often um, the parents who have uh, had their children taken away are at higher risk for uh, uh, drug or alcohol use, and one would assume throughout the pregnancy. <laughs> okay, that was one question, huh? Yeah, believe uh, it or not. Well, and I, I actually took a breath in there. <laughs> right. well, let's start. If you let's can find the question in there, you answer yeah. it, all right? Okay. Um, uh, let's start from a big picture and just make a general statement. Whether you're adopting domestically or internationally, just from a statistical perspective, I think it is more likely than not that the child that you're getting ready to adopt was exposed prenatally to alcohol or drugs. Uh, now, as far as exact, there are a lot of different studies looking at different scenarios. In our own work and working with child welfare systems across the country, 
the majority, and the figures vary from one state to the another, anywhere from 60 to 80 percent, but the majority of children available through ad for adoption through the child welfare systems, you know, foster care, their mothers did use alcohol or drugs. We'll get to dosage in a minute. Now, internationally, it really depends on the country, uh, and many of these countries now don't even make their children available. But a country like uh, Russia, Romania, you know, the Eastern Bloc nations, uh, the rate of alcohol use, alcohol exposure for those infants is extremely high. Uh, and, uh, again, there are a lot of different studies that look at different factors, but it comes down to I think you have to assume there probably was at least alcohol exposure if you're adopting from those countries. Now, a country like China, Honduras, uh, Guatemala, the likelihood of, of prenatal exposure to alcohol is much less, but in each country, for instance, China, we find more opiate exposure. So I think when parents are considering adoption, you have to go into this with open eyes, realizing there are going to be factors that are affecting uh, the, the prenatal, you know, the fetal brain development, uh, which, as we talked about last time, uh, is our, our major concern here. So, um, so when it comes down to it, yes, you have to be very aware of this and almost make the assumption, unless it's proven, you know, you can prove the negative, she, this mother did not use alcohol or drugs, you almost have to, have to assume that as you look at the child's records. Uh, the other question you threw in there was about dosage. Uh, there is no, let's start with alcohol, and I think we may, I apologize if some of this is repetitive from last time, I just don't remember what we talked about, but uh, the best scenario, of course, what we know about alcohol use is there is no amount of alcohol that's safe to use during pregnancy. Uh, now, there are a lot of other factors like timing, pattern of use, uh, number of pregnancies the woman has had, uh, genetic factors that all come into play here. But, uh, you know, the best thing is no alcohol use. There are some studies that show that any alcohol use at all during pregnancy produces a three times increased risk for delinquent behavior in the child. That's a study that came out of uh, Detroit. So, and there let me, let me stop you there. Wait, yeah. can I stop you there? Sure. Um, did they distinguish children who had been removed uh, for for whatever reason and raised in a uh, a different home? My question is: Oftentimes, mm -hmm. if a woman is using excessively uh, alcohol or drugs during uh, pregnancy, she would continue after the fact. So the child would be raised in a home where uh, alcoholism or drug abuse uh, might be prevalent, and one would assume that those children would have a higher risk for delinquency. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, we were going to get into that as we get into the long-term follow-up, but okay. we published a study in which we looked at uh, six-year-olds, and these were children all with their biological mothers, and we followed them, you know, we took care of the mothers during pregnancy. We knew exactly what drugs and alcohol dosage, we knew everything that they were on prenatally. And then we followed them long term. And what we showed was that the primary factor 
predicting the behavioral problems was not the prenatal exposure, but it's whether or not the mother continued to use after the baby was born. So that gets exactly to the question you're asking. Uh, and what we have here is that environmental aspect. Uh, again, jumping to the long term, but it's, it's pertinent here. We published a study just this last year on foster and adopted children. So that first study was on biologic. Now this is on foster and uh, I mean, foster. All of them were in the foster care system. Some are now adopted, but these were children that we had followed long term also, and all of them had been um, in the foster care system. And what we found, uh, one of the things you read about in the research literature is the high rate of co-occurring mental health disorders in children with prenatal especially prenatal alcohol exposure. And what we found in that study is that, yes, uh, the prenatal exposure does predict, you know, these long-term difficulties, but the stronger factor, when you looked at it statistically, what was predicting the, uh, the mental health disorders, it was the number of placements in the child welfare system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's that whole nature versus nurture, biology versus environment. So th what the implication of this for prospective adoptive parents is, number one, get your hands on that child as early as you can and uh, provide that stable living environment and the long-term outcome for the child will be much improved. I think that we tend to assume, um, the, the general public tends to assume that if a child has been exposed prenatally, mm -hmm. that their outcome is predetermined, that, that this child is, uh, for lack of a better word, damaged goods. Mm -hmm. Does the research, it sounds like from the research you have done and others, that, uh, that that's not a foregone conclusion. No, um, is that what the research is supporting? Yes, that's correct. Um, and one of the things, you know, what I was saying earlier, as far as early, there is a study, this one came out of Seattle, Washington, of prenatally exposed children. Now, this was all alcohol exposed. Uh, and I want to get to exposure history in a minute. Remind me about that. Uh, but uh, uh, Exposure history? Can you say that again? Yeah. Yeah, exposure okay. history. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, they were all alcohol exposed. And what they showed in that study, in looking at long-term outcome, the protective factors that improved outcome, one of the major ones was if the child is diagnosed and starts receiving treatment prior to the age of six years, you significantly improve long-term outcome for the child. So again, an important message to uh, prospective adoptive parents is it gets back to what I was saying earlier. Almost assume that the child was prenatally exposed. Don't worry about proving it, or but the, make that assumption, and then as soon as you have the child available to you, have that child go through a, an evaluation, not only of general development, because, you know, IQ, um, developmental scores tend to be normal, but find someone who really knows how to evaluate these children and get them early intervention services as soon as possible, that's going to improve long-term outcome, no matter what the exposure was. 
Well, let me stop here, even though it's not. It was gonna, I, I was going to address it later, but let's let's talk about it now, uh, since you just mentioned it. You you've mentioned treatment and early intervention. Mm-hmm. Define what do you mean by treatment? Let's say we have a child, we've adopted it too. We're making, mm-hmm. as you suggest, the assumption that the child has been exposed. Mm-hmm. What type of treatment should we be seeking? Well, that depends on the evaluation of the child. That's why I was saying you need to have someone assess the child. Now, when we do, there are three key areas that that children need to be evaluated for. One is called neurocognitive development. And what that is, that is, and you can do this at all ages, neurocognitive development is looking at, first of all, global development, global IQ scores if the child is older. It's looking at memory. Uh, It's looking at executive functioning, the ability of the child to focus, to pay attention, to plan and complete a task. So that's one area. The okay. second area, were you going to ask something? No, Paul. Oh, I thought I heard you say, okay. The second area is uh, self-regulation. The ability of the child to regulate his mood, regulate his behaviors in the context of the environment. And, we, and in young infants, we're looking at sleep patterns, feeding patterns, et cetera. And then the third area is um, adaptive. It's called adaptive living or adaptive development. And that what that's about is how you take normal daily living skills and apply them to your life. You know, to 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 daily living. Uh, for instance, in an old, it's easier to talk about in older children. Uh, telling time. Um, counting money, the concepts of money. Uh, So those three areas, no matter what age of the child, you want to have some evaluation of those three areas for all children. And then based on that, that's what then drives treatment. So we're treating directly to one of, if they have a deficit in any or all of these areas, the treatment would be geared towards uh, improving their executive function, improving their memory, improving their uh, uh, self-regulation. And you've mentioned both eating and sleep, but I would also assume mm-hmm. focus would be a part of that as well. Sure. Yes. Uh, you know, you and those are just the three core, what we call the three core neurobehavioral domains. Gotcha. And then they branch off their multiple areas. So it's hard to say, here's what treatment this child needs, because mm-hmm. uh, you don't know what the deficits are. For instance, a lot of the children with self-regulation problems, within that domain, you evaluate sensory processing or sensory integration, how they take stimuli from the world around them and apply it in daily living. And I just, I I blogged for uh, Psychology Today, and I just, I have a whole blog, my whole blog is about prenatally exposed children. And just yesterday, I posted a new blog on sensory integration. So uh, families that are listening to this might find that blog uh, helpful to them if they go back and start reading from the beginning. Because it's I will link tomorrow. to it in, tomor- in my blog tomorrow. I will uh, oh, link wonderful. to it uh, so that will, uh, people will have it. Um, they can go there, and I will, they'll take them to your, um, your blog. Okay. 
Excellent. So we, uh, um, the basic rule is assume exposure, then evaluate mm-hmm. and treat mm-hmm. to the deficits. Yeah, and I have so many parents that come in with that question. Well, how much is too much, and is alcohol better than cocaine, or you know? And basically, when it comes down to it, from the perspective of damage to the brain, I don't think parents need to be concerned about getting into those specifics. What parents need to be look at is functioning. And I tell families that are you know have adopted a and have a very young infant, uh, the three. Key questions are, you know, um, feeding, sleeping, and pooping. You know, what what is the child's behavior around those three areas? And that will give you a lot of insight across all of those domains we just talked about. And, that, of course, when people are trying to make uh, the decision on whether they are uh, able to adopt a child, they don't, mm-hmm. they don't have a child with which they're evaluating at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, we did get uh, questions asking about uh, three specific um, drugs, marijuana. Okay, before we get med- that, can I say something else? Absolutely. I, I don't want to leave a false impression. Somebody listening to this might say, oh, and this is what a lot of families come to me, and this is, this is a direct quote from so many families. They come to us for the first time, their child's three or four, things are falling apart, And we said, yes, we knew he was drug-exposed, alcohol-exposed, but we thought with enough love and enough church, everything would be fine. And that just isn't the case. So if you are going to adopt a child who's been prenatally exposed, there's a lot you can do for that child, but be aware that child's going to be at very high risk for behavioral difficulties. The other thing I wanted that I had mentioned earlier, and if, if... I'm going too fast or whatever, tell me. But the other thing I wanted to get back to is when parents come to us, I say, well, he was exposed to cocaine. Mm -hmm. The reality is when you look at the world of addictions, men tend to use one drug. Women are polydrug users. So, And in our studies, and we have hundreds of thousands of women in our studies, 80% of the women who use cocaine or marijuana or, you know, you name the drug, 80% of them are also using alcohol. So that parents need to, again, I don't think it's so important for them to focus down and say, well, she was using cocaine or she was using heroin. Uh, The reality is most women, for both social and economic reasons, are polydrug users, and so they're going to use that baby's brain has been exposed to multiple substances, including tobacco, all of which have an effect on the structure and development of the fetal brain. And oftentimes I would imagine what you are hearing from parents is they're wanting you to say that, in fact, that in their case with this expectant woman and their scenario, that their child will be the one who will escape and uh, right. Not not have any of the issues, and what I hear you saying is you can't make that assumption. No, no, uh, no. Unfortunately, not. Uh, and you know the other thing that happens so often when we see a family for the first time and they adopted a child, and I have you know we'll do the evaluation. I have a team of psychologists and you know all that work with me. And we'll do a full evaluation, and then we will present the findings to the parents, explaining it in terms of the damage that was done 
to the developing fetal brain, which of course is then lifelong, and the parents will break down and cry and say, everybody told us it was our fault that we were spoiling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had one family, and this is a true story, there's no way I could make these stories up, that came in and their pediatrician, they had been very concerned about the child they had adopted. And the mother said, you know, I'm a new mother. I don't really know a whole lot about kids, but my baby's not doing what the books say she should be doing. And this was at a month of age. And the pediatrician looked at her and said, you know what? You're an adoptive mother. If you were a real mother, you wouldn't be so nervous. And unfortunately, this is the kind of response a lot of adoptive and foster parents get. And they have to advocate for themselves and their child. And they need to find someone who knows about the risks associated. You know, there's a lot of promise, of course, but there are risks associated with uh, adoption. And the best thing, the best adoption is a well-educated adoption that parents go in knowing uh, what they need to deal with. Well, you're preaching to the choir here. Of course, we are the <laughs> National Adoption Education Organization. So oh, okay, that's right. <laughs> as you would assume, we are, that is, uh, you're singing to the choir on this one. Right, uh, right. One of the things we say all the time is that you know, information is power. And it's it, there's not a right nor a wrong in making the decision. If you're not the family for a child, there is no shame in that. Know it up front. Um, right. On the other hand, if you decide to go forward, get educated, be proactive, uh, and, uh, and 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 advocate for yourself, as you said, and, and obviously for your child. You are listening to Creating a Family today. We're talking about prenatal alcohol and drug exposure with Dr. Ira Chasnoff. Creating a Family has the largest adoption and infertility communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us on Facebook. You can connect with us on three ways. Dawn.Davenport1 is my personal account. You can also connect with us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash creatingafamily. Or you can join the Creating a Family Facebook support group. It is a closed group, uh, so you will need to uh, ask to join. We will let you join if you're connected in these areas, uh, and we would love to have you. And the best way to find that group is to type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box. We also are active on Twitter, and our handle there is at Creating a Family. And one of my very favorite social networks is Pinterest. And uh, we have, oh, I think 15 some odd adoption boards and about an equal number of infertility boards for everything you could possibly imagine in that area. So we would love to have you uh, to come join us on any of the social networks. Dr. Chesnoff, um we we uh, I have heard uh, we didn't get a question on this, but I've certainly heard from parents who believe that if their child is not born showing signs of dependence uh, mm-hmm. on whatever the substance that the mother is using, um, mm-hmm. that 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 their child will have less exposure, uh, mm-hmm. and if their child is born uh, showing dependency, then uh, then they have more to worry about. Is there any uh, is there any truth to that uh, uh, assumption? None at all. Okay, well, that's, there you go, none. <laughs> that's what I like about you. You answer the question. Very good. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. When you say dependence, what most parents think about right away is a baby who's jittery, irritable, and going through, quote, withdrawal. 
Exactly. The only the only substance that causes true dependence is the opiates, like heroin, methadone, the prescription narcotics, like if a mother was abusing, which is becoming more common now, OxyContin, Vicodin, you know, Tolwin, those kinds of drugs. So any of the narcotics are opiates. The baby goes through, uh, it's called an abstinence syndrome, and again, I've written about this on my uh, blog also, that looks like an adult going through drug withdrawal. Uh, irritable crying, high-pitched cry, sweating, vomiting, diarrhea. So those, those babies are very relatively easy to pick up. Any of the other infants we're talking about most of them are going to look perfectly normal at birth. There's not a dependence on a substance. The problem is that they have neurobehavioral changes, and those those kinds of the, those kinds of things uh, show up as a baby who um, has a lot of trouble sleeping. And as soon as he falls asleep, he wakes up, he startles, and he's crying and irritable, and then just as suddenly drops back into a deep sleep. That's, that's called state regulation. He's not able to regulate his state of arousal. And that's, remember, one of those domains was self-regulation. Mm -hmm. uh, the babies have feeding problems. Uh, they have periods where they shut down completely and aren't responsive. Um, the babies uh, either overreact or underreact to noise and, and light in the environment. So those are, those are the kinds of things that get written off as, oh, that's just a normal baby. What were you expecting? But, you know, these babies go beyond what one would think is normal uh, when it comes to, you know, sleep and feeding and those kinds mm -hmm. of things. So the babies don't go through withdrawal, as some people are looking for. And the other real fooler and the group that is especially uh, this is a problem with is the methamphetamine-exposed infants. Those babies are so irritable and so affected by the methamphetamine that the only way they can protect themselves is by shutting down. So those babies tend to sleep a lot. They don't wake for feedings. And parents say, oh, my baby is perfect. You know, he never, he never cries. He never, you know. But... The reality is the baby's protecting himself by just shutting down and and not responding to the environment at all. So those kinds of things can be mistaken for normal behavior uh, because they don't look like what people expect. And obviously those infants need an evaluation because we have to address these issues. So when we're looking at short-term versus long-term uh, effects of exposure to alcohol and, from what you're saying, really all the drugs as well. Um, the short term, we, we have an infant, or assuming that, that you're adopting an infant, that may be more irritable, may have trouble regulating uh, sleep, may have eating uh, difficulties, may be more mm -hmm. sensitive mm -hmm. to stimulation, mm -hmm. things such as that. Uh, do children who are responding that way as an infant, does that follow them? Uh, do those same uh, behaviors, uh, I guess the way that the, 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 the common parlance would be, will they outgrow them, those particular yeah. behaviors? Um, maybe those particular behaviors. But, see, there are no studies that have been, the people have tried, 
have been able to link what the baby looks like in the newborn state, does that predict what he's going to look like as a child or an adolescent? Well, that is one of my questions. By golly, you, you anticipated it. So yeah, well, the way the baby what... is does not yes. reflect the degree of exposure or how the child will function as an older child. In no, the no, no. It's, you, it's, con- it's, a pro- it's an issue of constant vigilance and knowing what to expect along each developmental phase. And that's why when I gave those three areas before, and I know this sounds very clinical and scientific, and, but, I, but it's important. The three areas, you don't look for specific behaviors, but become acquainted with the areas, the domains of concern, self-regulation, neurocognitive functioning, and adaptive behaviors. And parents need to become, hmm, sounds like a good blog for one of my blogs, uh, need to become familiar with what that looks like along the various age continuum, you know, the continuum of development, so that at each phase they know what to look for. Because it's not specific behaviors, but it's rather this, this larger, you look at it from a perspective of how the brain is functioning. So have there been studies uh, of children who have gotten early intervention? They've got parents who were able to get their child into treatment, who are paying attention to deficits along these three cognoneurative areas, and the parents and, and are addressing them as the child goes. Have there been studies that have followed these children to say, what is the long-term prognosis for these kiddos? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and it's it's really variable, um, but in general, there do the effects are subtle but certainly present. Let me just give you a, just a clear case example. Uh, I've been doing this a long time, and a couple of years ago, I got a call from a young man who said, "Dr. Chaslov, I don't know if you remember me. My name is you know uh, Stephen. I, I just made that up." Uh, my name is Stephen, and I am in graduate school. I'm getting my master's in psychology. I said, oh, great. Why are you calling? He says, well, you may not remember, but my birth mother was in your uh, drug treatment program when she was pregnant. She delivered, and I was adopted, and my adoptive family um, you know, followed up with you, and for the first six years of my life, you know, you and your team were taking care of me and, and, and et cetera. He said, at six years of age, we had told the family, okay, things are going well. See, you know, if you need us, call, but you discharged us from your clinic. He said, over the years, you know, he did well in school, obviously. He graduated with his undergraduate degree and is now in graduate school. He said, but I'm having trouble because, Although, you know, I'm bright and I'm doing the work, it takes me two to three times as long to get the work done. And he said, so my mother and I, his adoptive mother and he, went back and pulled out the report we had done when he was six years old. They hadn't looked at it a long time. And we had predicted his path. And he said they read that report and it said, told them exactly what was going to happen. He said, and that's exactly what had been happening. And so he said, can you help me now? So I began seeing him again a couple of years ago, 
And we were able to help him address some of these difficulties he was having in short-term memory. Uh, so he's very bright. See, it doesn't have anything to do with IQ per se, but it's this neurocognitive functioning, how your brain is working to be able to use information. And uh, so we were able to work with him and give him some skills that he needed, and he finished up his master's. And uh, hopefully I'm trying to convince him he needs to go for his Ph.D. So every child is so individual. But early on, by the time they're five and six, we can tell where the deficits are and where the strengths are and can provide parents a guide as to what they need to be doing and watching out for. Uh, there's no guarantee. And, uh, again, if you when this film is out, and I would really encourage your families to, to track us on our website, and uh, I'll certainly let you know also when this film is available, because these are families who have been exactly through this. These are four families who adopted children of, in infancy, and these kids are all uh, in the age range of 19 to 22, something like that. And, and, and let me go ahead and give that uh, the um, URL, your website, ntiupstream.com. And the film, do you anticipate, do you know when that film will be uh, We're released? We're hoping for a fall release. Uh, okay. It's called Moment to Moment. Oh, excellent. Uh, please do let me know. Um, yes. We will... Uh, Obviously, we will give you as much exposure as we can to this audience because I think that there's a great deal of that people are thirsty for information. You know, the, the child, Stephen, that you're describing as well as mm -hmm. some of the other descriptions could also describe many other kids who have not been exposed to alcohol and drugs but have uh, uh, executive functioning type of learning disabilities mm -hmm. or, um, or difficult self-regulation difficulties mm -hmm. caused mm -hmm. by... I'm not sure what, but something, um, either well, their temperament or perhaps something. Yeah, what's one of the most common causes of all that is early trauma. When a child, let's say there's no exposure at all, perfect pregnancy, but the child is born into a family where there's domestic violence, mental health problems, um, uh, substance abuse in the family, uh, all of those issues uh, as, as a kind of a – the phrase has been coined uh, early trauma, and it doesn't mean direct uh, trauma, you know, physical trauma necessarily, but emotional trauma. All of that has an impact on early brain development. So when you look at the brain studies, you know, we do a lot of work on fetal brain development, and we have MRIs of kids who are prenatally exposed, and the changes that occur in the fetal brain you hold those MRIs next to children who were not exposed but grew up in homes where there was a lot of trauma, abandonment, neglect, you get the same kinds of changes. There are only certain areas, you know, there's only so many parts of the brain that can respond to these various um, negative influences. And so a lot of the, some of the same changes that occur prenatally from drug exposure and alcohol exposure occur postnatally from exposure to trauma. And because so, the child's brain is developing very rapidly yeah. post-birth as well as the immediate months post-birth. That's the, 
uh, and prenatally. Well, for one year, yeah, the most yeah. rapid period of, of brain growth and development in you know the human lifespan is the third trimester of pregnancy through one year of life. And so you've got a very vulnerable brain. Then you bring into it issues of attachment, and again, you look at the brain studies, and, and you can, you know, we can point out the parts of the brain uh, responsible for uh, early attachment and, and how the wiring doesn't get formed properly if the child doesn't get the kind of nurturing and love he needs in the first uh, three years of life. And that's where we get into the international adoptions. My greatest concern for babies adopted internationally, yes, we're concerned about their alcohol and drug exposure, but uh, my larger concern is the early neglect. And we wrote a book a few years ago called Risk and Promise that specifically is about international adoption. And it goes into this whole idea of institutional autism, that babies that don't get appropriate stimulation in the early years of life, touching, loving, hugging, voice, visual stimulation, which describes a lot of babies in orphanages, mm -hmm. uh, those babies don't learn how to respond uh, to the world around them. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the, the sensory input isn't there to help shape their perception of the world. And I should say that we have a lot, as you would imagine, of resources uh, on our site, creatingafamily.org, on attachment, attachment issues, how yeah, to strengthen yeah. attachment, risks of attachment. So uh, under uh, adoption resources, uh, click on attachment and uh, you will, uh, the A to Z resources, and you will see more than you would, <laughs> more than you would like. Yeah, you are listening to Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Infertility. We are so glad to have you on the show talking Thanks. today about uh, prenatal alcohol and drug exposure with Dr. Ira Chasnoff. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption of infertility as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic. We give you the opportunity to submit questions for that next week's show guest expert. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to any page of creatingafamily.org, uh, and you will see the, uh, the newsletter uh, sign-up box. Is there a um, propensity uh, of children who have been exposed prenatally to, in later life, become addicted themselves? Ah, uh, great question. First of all, you have to go step back a minute and just look at genetics, what we're learning about genomes. And we know now there is a hereditary component to addiction. So any baby born to a family in which there are drug and alcohol problems, whether exposed prenatally or not, uh, any baby with uh, that genetic history is going to have increased risk for addiction problems themselves. So that's, that's number one. Now, when you come down specifically to prenatal exposure, what you find is that it's not, the prenatal exposure in and of itself doesn't raise the risk, but the behaviors related to prenatal exposure. So as children get older, by six, seven years of age, we published a study that shows that 73% of drug and alcohol exposed children meet criteria for ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, if you just look at clinical criteria. 
but then further research shows it's a different kind of ADHD. So it's important to differentiate it because there's a differential response to medications as the kids mm-hmm. get older. But when the kids aren't treated appropriately for their ADHD, they will self-medicate. And there's the greatest danger. Uh, and, and it's that the kids, for whatever reason, they don't know about prenatal exposure, maybe or maybe not, but what they, don't, what they do know is they feel off. And, for example, alcohol makes them feel better. Marijuana makes them feel better. And that's the issue. So we have a handbook for parents that how do you talk to your child? When do you talk to your child? And our recommendation is around the age of eight, you begin talking to your child. Now, all of the children, I would hope, know they're adopted. Do you necessarily need to tell them that they were exposed, that their mother, birth mother drank alcohol or did drugs during pregnancy? Not necessarily. But in a lot of cases, it, it is needed. So mm-hmm. this handbook talks about how to talk to your child about that, starting at about eight years of age, and has pictures of the brain. But the upshot of the discussion has to be when other children, friends are out there experimenting with alcohol, marijuana, you just absolutely can't because you have the genetics and the greater likelihood of have, getting into problems with, with alcohol and marijuana and, you know, these other things. So, you, you know, you, you make the conversation developmentally appropriate, but you have to, especially as they reach adolescence, you have to be very clear that it's just a very dangerous um, experiment for them to get into some of these other substances. Again, I will link to that handbook in my blog to, uh, that will be uh, posted tomorrow. If you are listening to this show, which most people probably are not live, then uh, it would be posted. It would just go to our site, creatingafamily.org, uh, and look for the May 2014 blog um, on this topic, and, uh, and all these links will be found there. What about a um, – have you found that there is a greater likelihood of mood disorders, bipolar, or any type of mental health issues associated with uh, uh, children who have been exposed to drugs or alcohol uh, in utero? Yes. Uh, I, spo- I spoke about it just a little bit earlier. There is clear research now that over 90% – of alcohol-exposed children have a co-occurring mental health disorder. Now, a lot of those early studies were done with the families, the biologic families, but we've done the same studies in foster and adopted children and have found that, yes, there is a significant increase in the rate of co-occurring mental health disorders such as bipolar, ODD, et cetera. However, that's the study I was talking about earlier that, yes, prenatal exposure is a risk factor, but an equal, if not greater, risk factor is the early trauma, often the result of being in the foster care system and, you know, multiple placements in the foster care system. So there are several factors that feed into that, but the research does show increased rates, even in foster and adopted children, of mental health disorders. 
But what about the situation uh, where a child is adopted at birth, so doesn't have, <laughs> assumably would not have uh, early trauma of abuse or neglect? Well, uh, so the child... yeah, go ahead. <laughs> we may have to do a third session. Um, so you just asked you just ask a huge question. Let me give you tell you a story. I know we're running short on time now. That's okay. Go ahead. We have a family here in Chicago who, through a private process, found a woman that they were going to adopt her baby, and she was out in another state. And so they flew back and forth through the pregnancy, supported her, and in fact were at the delivery. And this baby was delivered directly into the waiting arms of the adoptive mother. It was just the best case scenario, and they had no history of anything. The baby was born, and within a couple of days was extremely irritable, crying, uh, the neurobehavioral issues we talked about earlier. This baby was a mess, and these parents couldn't, adoptive parents couldn't figure out what was going on. They got the baby back to Chicago, we didn't see her until she was three years old, at which point the family was near the point of disrupting the adoption. We did an evaluation of this child and at three years of age, and she showed every sign and symptom of our children who were prenatally exposed. The parents went back to the woman, the birth mother, and found out at that point that, yes, the birth mother had been using alcohol, uh, methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, it, but they didn't know it. So they came back to Chicago. Three years of age, we started her in treatment, but the diag- one of the diagnoses we gave her was reactive attachment disorder. Now, this is a loving family, and they did everything a family could be expected to do to build a bond and, you know, attachment with this child. But see, here's the thing people overlook. Attachment is a two-way street. You have to have, attachment is all about the human connectedness. And in order to develop that human connectedness, you have to have a caregiver, and in almost all cases, this is the mother. You have to have a mother who knows how to read the cues of her infant and respond appropriately to those cues. And that's what everybody talks about with attachment. The part people forget about is you have to have an infant who can read the cues of the mother and respond appropriately to the mother's cues. Because if the baby is so neurobehaviorally impaired from his prenatal exposure, he can't read the cues and so doesn't respond to the mother. And if a baby doesn't respond to a mother, how does the mother react? She begins to pull away. So... Mm -hmm. Although this was a best-case scenario and this was a dedicated family and they had other children they knew and they were full of love for this child, but the baby's inability to read the cues of the mother because of the prenatal exposure, that baby couldn't attach appropriately. And it sounds uh, like the mother was also struggling to attach as well. Oh, so, uh, then, so then the mother, and that's, that's a normal human reaction. You know, if, sure. if you keep getting negative feedback, if you do everything you can and still the baby isn't responding to you, that's, that's pretty, it's pretty normal that then you would start pulling back. It's true. So we yeah. began with therapy with them, and, you know, but 
so I forget even what the question was you asked me, but that's well. The uh, question though, and, and, and it was if there's research that looks the, the research you had described earlier was looking at children who had been removed from their families and were in foster care, some of which had been adopted. So in truth, they had been removed from the uh, uh, neglectful or abusive biological family, but they were Mm -hmm. still, many of them, in foster care and were still exposed. Number one, they were exposed to early trauma Mm -hmm. in their biological home. Then number two, they were exposed to the trauma of of removal and the trauma of multiple placements. So, But what about kids who in the scenario, as you just gave us the anecdotal case, where they were adopted immediately well, they, uh, we still, at birth. Yeah, and some of the families that are in the film I talked about adopted mm-hmm. their children right at birth, and the children are still having significant problems, much better than they would have been if they had stayed in the foster care system or had been adopted later. So, you know, again, these are best-case scenarios, but there's still, there is damage to the brain from prenatal alcohol and drug exposure, and it's real hard to get past that. You can make things better, you can treat it, but there's no cure. And so that's why it takes constant work with the family to make things as best as possible. Is there a way to predict which kids are going to be like the Stephen you mentioned who are going to have problems, um, but then their problems might not look that significantly different from a lot of the rest of the world's problems as far as they may have uh, focus issues. They may have, um, you know, uh, takes them longer to learn. They may, you know, whatever. Um, And those children who will never be able to really function in this world uh, without a, uh, either independently or without a great deal of of help. Yeah. Well, early on, if the child has intellectual disabilities, what used to be called mental retardation, picked up, that can be picked up early. And so, yeah, that's that's pretty clear. But that's not where families get into trouble. You know, if they're going to adopt a child with significant intellectual disabilities, that that shows up. That's severe enough that you know they'll know what they're getting into. Mm-hmm. What you cannot predict are the kids with the normal cognitive abilities. So you know their IQs are perfectly normal. And in fact, I have kids. IQs are, you know, they, they have prenatal alcohol and drug exposure, IQs 125. So it's not really IQ. It's about functional behaviors. And that's what you cannot, that, there's no way to predict. So if families are going to adopt a child who is drug or alcohol exposed, they have to know what they're getting into, you know, what the possibilities are, and they need to be an advocate. They need to search out. They need to find someone they can work with that will evaluate the child and knows how to what kinds of therapies should be that child is going to need based on the child's evaluation. And what type of uh, is there? Are there specialists that people should be seeking? Um, can a just a general psychologist? Can a general educational psychologist? What type of how do we get the evaluation um, early and often for as they say the voting in Chicago where you're from? Uh, how do we get this type of uh, evaluations done uh, for our children? To whom? What type of specialist do we go to? Well, you usually it's not one specialist. It takes a team. Now, for example, for our program in Chicago, um, we have on every team a physician who knows 
this area you know, well. Uh, we have a clinical psychologist trained specifically in the age range of the child that's related to substance exposure. And then we have ther a whole team of therapists. So that's what families need to look for. Now, I get emails all the time. I live in XYZ. Who can I go to? And the reality is there's not a whole, there's, there's not a whole lot, lot of possibilities. However, I'm working, uh, I'm on a committee with the American Academy of Pediatrics, and we're, trying to, we're going to be putting out some guidelines for pediatricians to help them understand what these children need and how to proceed with these children. And that's part of a big national movement now. We're trying to get this information out into the field. And that's one of the things this, this film is going to do, is bring these core issues to the public, to professionals. It's going to be accompanied by a book that takes things even you know, further. Uh, and we're hoping with this kind of package we can get this information out and create more opportunities for services for these kids. Yeah, I think that there is a um, there's a huge need out there, but for families who do live outside of a, a uh, where or live in a, any area that doesn't have necessarily a one stop shop that would have everything. Their first stop would be their pediatrician, I would assume, right. and then some advocacy uh, to get their child to do. Who would do the original, uh, the the first type of evaluation, looking at the neurocognitive areas that you've mentioned? What type that's of specialist do they go to? Well, depending on the age, but in general, that's a psychologist. But as it becomes more complicated, what you're really looking for is a neuropsychologist. But, you know, there are very few neuropsychologists out in rural areas, you know, also. Um, one of the things, you know, what I would recommend is uh, someone go to our website and uh, query us about there are some areas of the country that I can refer people to specific programs. Um, and so if they live in that area, I can tell them at least where the closest program would be for them. And again, that website is ntiupstream.com. So for families uh, overall, are you optimistic for families who are considering adopting a child, or do you recommend extreme caution and to uh, um, is this is something that uh, the prognosis is, is grim and, and not to proceed with? No, no, no. Uh, I think that there are lots of kids out there who were prenatally exposed and absolutely are adoptable and can have a bright future. I just want parents to uh, adoptive parents to understand uh, what the needs are long term. I've seen too many cases where families went into this not understanding the implications, and then we see them, you know, after when the kid is three, four, ten years old and has received no services, and they're, they're up a creek, and they're asking for help. But, you know, I also see a lot of families who that parents did go in with their eyes open or their eyes were open shortly thereafter, and they, <laughs> they, they have advocated for their child. <laughs> and, you know, these children, uh, albeit the ones that uh, are, are 
predominantly uh, below the age of like 16, but mm-hmm. these kids are, are doing fairly well. Uh, Now, obviously, uh, some things are worse than others and some exposures are worse than others, but many of these Mm -hmm. kids, um, uh, I would assume you see those in your practice as well. Oh, absolutely, sure. Yeah, there's no no one answer I can give you. Uh, It's a very individualized uh, issue, but the best thing parents can do is get the child evaluated provide the kinds of services the child needs, including some of the parenting and those kinds of things. And, um, oh, yeah, I have far more children who are doing really, really well than children who have kind of, you know, hit the wall. So, you know, there's, there's, there's no pat answer to the question, should I or should I not adopt a child who's been prenatally exposed? Uh, I would say yes. Proceed. Get all the information you can, and then um, you know do the things you can to make sure your child gets services and get support for yourself. Because you know, Absolutely. adoptive parents, all parents need help along the way, and especially if you're parenting a child that doesn't fit the uh, the, the typical mold, uh, get support for yourself uh, as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Ira Chasnoff, for being our guest once again on Creating a Family. When the film comes out, uh, is it Moment to Moment? Is that the name? Moment to Moment, yes. Moment to Moment. Uh, please let us know. Uh, I would be very interested in, in reviewing that and, and giving it as much exposure to our audience uh, as possible. For our audience, if you would like to participate in a discussion on the topics of this show, please check out my blog tomorrow at Creating a Family dot org slash blog again to get more information on dr chasnoff and his practice nti you can go to his website ntiupstream.com i'd also like to take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources that creating a family We have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. He is a North Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. We have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a national adoption agency with offices in North Carolina and New York, placing children from Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, Armenia, Morocco, and Serbia. And we have Children's Connection. They have adoption agency with offices throughout Texas, providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support uh, to families throughout the United States. If you have enjoyed this show and want to help us grow, please go to iTunes and rate us. Uh, It's a star rating, or you can leave a comment, either one. Uh, We would prefer the comment and star rating, actually, both. Uh, And we would be very, very appreciative of your help. Thank you for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now, an ad from Dad. All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made.
Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.